I let that sweet nectar of the gods roll past my tongue down my esophagus, and when it hit my stomach, man, it spread through my veins like wildfire. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today we're with Brad Toll, who is really a champion in the recovery community and lives and works inside of the industry. And I don't know if I, well, first of all, thanks for being here. That was kind. Champion. <laughs> you are a champion. <laughs> I need a battle axe. I feel like. <laughs> but thanks for being here. Oh, yeah. And I don't think I told you this, but I met you when I was in very early on in my recovery. Mm-hmm. And I always noticed that you had a smile on your face and seemed to be enjoying a sober life. If you came from where I came from, you and ended where I ended. Yeah, there's definitely a smile that would be implicated in that situation. Yeah, so, and I would say to myself, this is what I envision trusting the process looks like. So, it gave me a lot of hope, and I just want to thank you for that. Oh, so. no, thank you. Honestly, you know, and, and getting to be, I think getting to be like you know that what you just described, like. I'm, I was smiling. You know what I mean? Like, that's a big deal to me. And so, you know, recovery's changed my life in a way that, you know, a million different other things have not. And I've wanted to. You know, marriage hasn't changed my life in, in that way. Uh, divorce hasn't changed my life in that way. You know, I would say kids and recovery are kind of the two things that really will, will uh, you know, make your life better. And mine made my life better like yeah. that. So you work in business development for a local treatment center, which we will discuss. Okay. But more importantly, you are an individual living in long-term recovery. Uh, you know, in, in the circles I run in, I still feel uh, I still call myself a newcomer. Uh, but since June twenty fifth of two thousand and twelve, I have not picked up a drink or a drug. So, um, congratulations! You know, coming up on seven years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. awesome. Just dive in for the listeners. Why don't you just start by telling us a little bit of your story go back as far as you want and what got you to where you are now yeah absolutely uh man you know i guess um i'm from i'm from a catholic family in eastern kentucky so as far as alcohol is concerned, I was a late bloomer. I didn't take my first drink until I was 12. You know, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I white-knuckled the first 11 years, <laughs> just holding on, not drinking. Um, and then presented to me on a, you know, a warm summer night was this warm bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. Yes. You know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And it's only the, the adolescent <laughs> drink of choice. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so, you know, only drink wine if it has a screw-on lid. It's a big deal. You know, the good stuff comes with a screw-on lid. <laughs> and so we cracked that open, and I was the brave one that took the first drink. Now, if you don't know why I say brave... You have to have courage to actually swallow Boone's Farm. <laughs> if you've ever tasted it, you know what I'm talking about. But I let it. Uh, I let that sweet nectar of the gods roll past my tongue down my esophagus, and when it hit my stomach, man, it spread through my veins like wildfire. I mean, it was just even that early. That early, man. It, you know, because prior to that moment, there had always been a lot of um, self doubt. You know what I mean? There had always been a lot of bad self talk. Um, not good enough, like that feeling of just not fitting in, even though, you know, you've, I've got a lot of friends, um, you know, s- somewhat popular, I guess you'd call it, uh, 
at my high school. And, um, but alcohol did something that nothing had ever done. I was tight. I was uptight and scared to death that you would figure out that I wasn't as cool as I had tried to make you think I was, right? So, Amen. you know, my self-esteem down, my pride's way up, didn't make any sense. Uh, and when I took a drink, all that kind of went away. And I just kind of released this sigh, you know, just sigh of relief. <sighs> right. You know, and all of a sudden, I'm slapping fives with the guys that I, you know, and just kind of cut loose with those guys. And I'm able to, and the big thing was I was able to look the girls in their eyes and tell them they were pretty. Yeah. I mean, that's a big deal yeah, for absolutely. us, you know. I mean, yeah. I'm just dying of self. And then all of a sudden, this thing that I drink allows me to do these things I'd always wanted to do, say the stuff I wanted to say. You know, and I thought to myself, well, this is worth it. You know, it's worth that nasty taste. It does, because I wasn't, you know, I had no idea what it would do to me, but what it did for me was special. Right. You know, I mean, it was truly magnificent. And so, you know, I guess I made a plan that night uh, to do this as often as I possibly could. I don't know if it was conscious or subconscious, but uh, that's what I did for a while. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> that's 12. By 15, the consequences, the consequences are starting to roll around, you know, um, I took, let's see, I grabbed a, a bottle of Jägermeister. Now, you know, like the foot and a half tall one, the big half gallon one. Right. You know, so we, we, we stole that from a local uh, pharmacy and didn't even bother tucking it in, you know, the pants or under the shirt. We just grabbed it and ran because it was too big, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we get back to the house. We drink the entire half gallon between me and another guy. And somewhere around 2, 3 a.m., he looks at me and asks me for a cigarette. Well, I was out. And so we, we've got to go get some. So I'm 15. I look every bit of 14. I walk into this convenience store and say, give me a pack of Newports in a box, you know? <laughs> and this lady's looking at me like, kid, get out of here. You know, just leave. This isn't going to, like, no. And, you know, and that's the selfishness and self-centeredness because I really, you know, expected her to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. And it never occurred to me that I'm potentially asking her to throw away her livelihood. She may have children. I'm not real certain. But, you know, throw away whatever money she's making in order to, you know, give this 15 year old his nicotine fix. So she didn't sell them to me. And I went to the next uh, gas station and got the same results. And at some point, my alcoholic addicted mind starts to have like this new type of logic. Right. It starts to just these super self-centered and selfish thoughts start to streaming in. Delusions of grandeur. Right. And it's like, you asked politely. Now you have to take them, you know, show them what they've done, you know. So we drive to the nearest discount tobacco store. We grab the biggest rock in the parking lot. Throw it through the window oh, and way overshot the mark. I'd went out for a pack of cigarettes. I'm now driving home buried beneath an avalanche of about 150 cartons. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, my buddy takes his half and I take mine and he gets caught. He tells on me, please show up to my house with a big bag of dirty cigarettes. Uh, you know, after a um, long story, uh, they found the stuff. And I signed an affidavit of guilt and at 15 years old, I'm a felon. It's like 15, really? man. I have wow. a 15-year-old right now. I have a 15-year-old who's an amazing kid, straight-A student, you know, working on college stuff. Um, that wasn't me. You know, wow. and I think, like, what was I doing to my parents? You know, I look back at this thing, and I'm like, 
Those people loved me unconditionally, and all I could do to repay them for that unconditional love was like just terrible things. I mean, like burglaries and drug abuse and like bringing people in and out of their house that would constantly steal from them, and yet I wouldn't stop that because I needed those individuals to continue my behavior. You know, it's just like the screaming matches and the, you know, this, the complete disrespect at all points and begging. Cause I am like, I need mom and dad to survive. I have no skills other than like, you know, I can sell narcotics and, <laughs> and I can drink. Other than that, I'm useless, <laughs> you know? And, you know, I do. And, and those consequences that, that, you know, 15 being a felon, that doesn't even make me an addict or an alcoholic. It's just drama that surrounds it. But when we got home and my parents, they said, you're grounded forever. The thought was, is that like I'm sitting in this room and the walls are closing in on me and the restless irritability and discontentedness is just on me. And the the idea that a drink will solve this came to mind. Like this feeling, these walls closing in, all, you know, all of these outside stuff swirling around me there's all this drama like if i get a drink this will stop and so they had closed my door to my room and i'd opened the window and took off like that's what you know that i needed your a alcoholic drink. mind that, was tuned in early oh it was it was early and you know that that just happens and happens and i've somehow graduated high school not real sure how don't remember a lot of it don't know that I went enough to graduate honestly <laughs> they were just tired of me uh you know went to college Went to a couple classes, uh, got more involved in LSD than I did ACT, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like just, (laughs) I had more hits of blotter acid than I had points on my ACT score, you know. Just, um, so, you know, Lexington, Kentucky's a hell of a place to drink. It's a hell of a place to further alcoholism and drug addiction. Absolutely. That's where I went to. (laughs) You know, I mean, you know, the fish tank, Saddle Ridge, uh, you know, I can sit here at Two Keys Tavern, man, been thrown out of there a couple times, you know. It's, and, um, you know, but I looked at it at the time and we're thinking to myself, like, you know what? This is just me being young. Like, I'll get it together. Like, inevitably, I'll get it together. And, you know, some things, every drug I've ever done, I've been drunk, like, for the first time. You know what I mean? Like, every mm-hmm. time I've ever done a drug for the first time, I was drunk during that period. Right. Cocaine, I was probably 17, 18 years old, and I was selling it. Like, I listened to a lot of rap music. You know what I mean? And so, like, I did, you know, Master P. Yeah. And I I would just, I'd pick out the stuff. I'm delusional. We just talked about that. And so, in order to further my addiction, my drug, my alcoholism, I I would just, like, um, I listen to this rap music and pick out the stuff that I could relate to in it. You know what I mean? And so Master P came along after Tupac died, which was a big deal. Oh, man. (laughs) Absolutely. It was was heartbreaking. Uh, Because, you know, I'm from Maysville, Kentucky. (laughs) And we had a lot in common. So, but Master P comes along, and I'm white, right? Master P comes along, and he and Master P's like, you know, I sell drugs, and I'm like, man, me too, you know. And he's like, uh, you know, my I got a I got a gun in in my car, and I'm like, my dad's got a gun in the closet, you know, that counts, right? He's like, I got you guys gold. Are getting tight, right? Exactly. And he decided, you know, he's like, I got gold teeth. I'm like, mine are yellow. Close enough. <laughs> whatever I need, you know, <laughs> I'll say I'll say do whatever the hell I need. It's crazy. Oh man. Uh, and you know, that's the kind of like, but you know, so I got shit faced drunk. 
uh, Wild Turkey 101, started drinking about 8 a.m. that morning. Uh, Kentucky basketball, high school basketball state tournament. Now, if you've ever been before, it's wild. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a bunch, we were young. We were in a hotel and running around. I got drunk that morning, and I was selling that Coke, and somebody looked at me and said, hey, if you uh, will do some of that Coke you're selling, you'll be able to keep drinking. And so I just kind of like, I, he, I was so drunk I couldn't move. He just threw it on a plate for me. I rolled my face into it, <laughs> you know, and snorted it up. Man, I came up off that bed like Lazarus from his tomb. You know what I mean? <laughs> Zombie. Just, right. Um, and I like that drug, <laughs> you know? And so it's just a million times like that. And inevitably, there's this little known drug. I think it only affected maybe Eastern Kentucky, maybe not any other part of America, but it was called Oxycontin. and uh that came around started doing that i had all these yellow and green spots all over the bottom of my shirt you remember rubbing the coating off of them i don't know if you ever did those or not i was no i did not yeah yeah i was an upper guy yeah right yeah i liked it all i liked all around you know i really want to go down but if all you got is something to go up we'll go up i'll worry about how come down later right (laughs) you know what i mean like whatever you got uh, so we started doing that and, um, you know, lots of cocaine, lots of cocaine. And, um, sometime in 2000, I had a kid in the meantime, like dropped out of college, can't keep a job, you know, selling narcotics, can't be a dad, can't be a brother, can't be a son, can't be a boyfriend. Doesn't matter what it is other than drug user and drinker. I can't be it. 2007, I get busted. Selling uh, Oxycontin. I'm at the, you know, I'm, I'm drinking, like always, uh, drinking the Jägermeister and Miller Lite. I, uh, cops show up. I'd been selling pills out of this restaurant, man. They arrest me, and um, I go into court. They sentence me to seven years, and I'm just oh thinking gosh. to myself, like, I'm a good guy. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you people? Why That's are you... Fun. <laughs> Seven years? How could you do this to me? And they send me into this. Uh, they send me into this substance abuse program within a local jail, and I, and I meet a little four foot ten Mennonite lady in there. Do you know what a Mennonite is? I don't. Okay, so a Mennonite is an Amish person that can drive a car. Okay. Okay. So she is a PhD in psychology, and she is running this substance abuse program, and she's also a card-carrying member of a certain 12-step fellowship. Okay. And she starts to read this particular book to us and, um, you know, starts to walk me through the 12-step process, and I don't even know she's doing it. Long story short, I just wasn't ready yet, wasn't willing, you know, uh, it all it just it just didn't pan out that time, but the seed was planted. Um, I got out and had uh, met so a, so how long were you were you uh, there for seven years? I did years? close to two years. Okay. Yeah, to the parole board. Uh huh. Yeah, six months in the in the substance abuse program, and then close to two years of the parole board, which was tough. I had a small child. You know, another felony. And, and well, yeah, 15, the one at 15 doesn't really, I mean, it, it counts, right. but it doesn't, okay. you know, like it. It, they don't, yeah. they can't see that, but they can see Understood. this one. Right. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. It's like, you know, I'm out, I've got a felony, I've got a child, I've got little to no hope that my life is ever going to turn around. And so I just go back to what I know and that's the bar. You know, within a couple of weeks, I'm back living at the bar selling dr- drugs again. I I just didn't have a choice, and I know that, that sounds weak or it sounds like you know, like an excuse, but 
when the, that insane obsession is on you that drugs or alcohol are going to fix this internal problem, there's just no real, real you can't really say no to it. Um, met a girl and, and not long after that nearly lost my life to an overdose. Really? Started doing intravenous, uh, heroin. Um, only did that for about six months of my life and that was enough. I mean, I've died I don't know how many times. Really? Yeah. I Narcan mean, and the whole nine? Yeah, the whole nine. You know, just in and out of uh, jail. And they sent me to a treatment center, and it didn't work out again. And I ended up back in jail and just whooped. Like, I mean, beat up so bad by my own addiction that I couldn't imagine life with it anymore. But then I'm at the same place where I just can't imagine life without it. What year was this? This is 2011. Okay. And uh, so I, 2011, I wake up in this jail cell. My hair is literally falling out of my head as I wash it. Like I'm pulling, looking at my hands and they're just full of hair. Like I had done enough damage to my body where it's just, dying. I'm about done. Yeah, it's dying. Wow. So um, I got down on my knees you know, I, I'm I'm a big believer in the spiritual component of recovery. It's been my experience, mm-hmm. which is, for me, the most important thing I've got. And I said this prayer in front of all these guys, these other criminals that I, you know, wanted to be like, I guess, or admired for a long time. And I kind of gave up and said, you know what? Fuck these guys. You know? right. <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore. Right. You guys can have this shit. Mm-hmm. None of you ever come see me when I'm locked up. I got no money on my books from anybody other than mom and dad. Right. You know, never get any visits from any of you all. You won't even answer the phone. Right. And then when I go to jail, you call me a snitch, which isn't true either. And that, you know. Yeah, there's not a lot of loyalty in the game. No, you know? man. And you realize a- who your who your friends are, you right. know, and then you're hanging out with the, the people right in the mix and they could give a shit. Yeah, I mean, right. really. Mm-hmm. But hey. you, th- but you think you're tight. Oh, that's you're it. rolling together, and man, this guy's got my back. But it, it that's the delusional yeah. alcoholic mind. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not true at all. As a matter of fact, everybody's as self centered as one another. So we're only out for me. Mm-hmm. Now, if I think that you can help me with something in the future, or you have something that I want, I will be willing to help you. And hope that it would be returned, but it's never like an altruistic thing. Right. You know, it's never real friendship. Right. So, I don't, I don't know. 2011, uh, I end up in that jail cell, I say a prayer. And it was just like, you know, I'm raised Catholic. So in Catholicism, we have a ton of windy prayers. None of those came to mind in that moment. It was just kind of this defeated, God help me. Right. You know, God help. Right. And I crawled up in that bunk and then um, woke up the next morning and there's some 12-step literature next to my bunk and I just started reading it. I mean, it was, and I just started identifying with it, I think was the saving grace. I could see myself all over these pages. Right. I mean, it, it just described me to a T that, you know, there's one specific passage that says, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We were without defense against the first drink. And I could remember sitting in those jail cells on different occasions, like hiding my tears from people as I called home, and thinking to myself, I'll remember how bad this is, I won't do it again. Or being in, you know, just any of the dark corners and crannies of my life and thinking to myself, I'll remember the pain of this moment and I will use this 
to keep that insane idea away, which is I'll just have one or two. That's the insane idea always, right? I'll just have a little bit, take the edge off, right? And 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 it just didn't never worked, you know. Like, and I just didn't have a defense. I didn't have a mental defense against this thing, and and you know, and so I end up in the penitentiary. Wow, and that that's a big like, you know, I'm not like. I, pre- I presented myself as this, like, tough, irrational, you know, violent man, but I wasn't. I was scared, and right. I used violence to keep fear at bay, and I used, you know, this coping mechanism right. as you knew it. Yeah, sure, like right. we use drugs to cover up our insecurities. And sure, right. Yeah, I mean, it was just part, it's part of all that. Like, you have to use violence occasionally, mm-hmm. where I was at anyway. I mean, I'm sure not all, everybody with addiction problems does, but it, in my certain, in my instance... It was necessary in a lot of cases. And so, you know, I'm sitting in this violent place, completely stark raving sober, scared out of my mind. And I had an experience in a church the first night I was there in the prison. They called church, and I went down there. And there's like, I had to sit in the back. I was the last person in there. I was the last seat in the room. I sit down, and there's this like six foot six monster of a man. I mean, just rippling muscles, you know, missing a tooth, ball, just, you know, Mr. Clean looking m and you know, right. <laughs> just, and I look, you know, and <clears throat> I'm sitting down and they're all standing up, like, it's a Protestant type church, so there's a lot of like, you know, kind of outgoing singing going on, right. which I'm not used to, right. which is fine, I just wasn't used to it, and I'm just sitting there, and they're all, you know, clapping and, you know, carrying on, doing all this stuff, and he looks over at me and he notices that I'm sitting down in the chair while everyone else is standing, and he looks over at me and says, hey, won't you get up and sing with us? And I look back at him just as grim as I could look and said, hey, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, all right, man, I'll do anything. Just don't hurt me, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> So I got up and I'm like, uh, you know, I, I found while I was singing and praising and worshiping a creator that I wasn't, I don't know if I was. I don't know if I believed in it at that moment or not, but I just was doing it out of willingness to get out of that situation. Like, I just wanted something different in mm-hmm. that moment. I don't know how else to explain it to you. And um, while I was doing that, though, while I was praising God, I found that I was not concerned about when is my out date, which is like the number one priority when you're locked up. Sure. Number two priority was like, where is she at? I wasn't concerned about that or do the kids love me, or any of these other things, I'm okay. Like, there's a peace, a sense of peace and ease and, uh, like, calmness came over me. And it was just kind of, it was this experience of serenity that I'd never had before. Like, in the darkest place I'd ever been in my life, here is this serenity that all of a sudden comes, you know, from just a little bit of willingness to do something in the spiritual realm. And, um, you know, it just kind of went from there, man. It just kind of went from there. I got out and 12 steps and sponsorship and fellowship and uh, a lot of amends and a lot of clearing away the wreckage of my past. I mean, years and years uh, of doing that uh, and then helping other people out of the black hole that is addiction and alcoholism. And as a result of my willingness to do that, I do it at, I do it at the – for uh, kind of for work. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. But, like, I do it outside of work. Like, it's not like I know how to separate those two things. I know a lot of people get into the addiction industry and that, you know, there's not some 
program or any altruism left in there in the recovery if all you're doing is work you know what i mean um not willing to help somebody outside of that realm and that can get real sticky people can get in a lot of trouble doing that i've seen it happen a ton of times um especially with marketers um so i've been you know continue been still very active yeah still very step. active you know yeah. conferences and sponsorship and you know service positions all over so yeah it's good life's good it's amazing. Is that is that a pretty good no? It's amazing description man. of yeah. what happened. I mean, it, I can describe to you the loneliness. No, that no, I feel. no, no. Um, that's that's a great snapshot. A lot of people who go through the life of an alcoholic or addict, when they come to realize and have our moment of clarity, we want to be of service. Mm -hmm. What made you want to make it a career? That's a good question. Uh, hmm. So in two twenty. End of 2015, I lived in a sober living house when I got sober, okay? Um, at the end of 2015, the guy that owned those houses was wanting to get out of them. Uh, There's a couple of houses he owned in the area. And um, I wanted to provide um, services because there's a lot of people in our particular area that are completely indigent, coming out of prisons, coming out of treatment centers, they're, you know, three generations of addiction in their life. They have nothing. They have no one to help them. And I saw this opportunity that like, if I could, you know, buy these places and I could be of service to people. And so it started there. I bought, um, what is now bright outlook recovery at the end of 2015. And we've helped a lot. I hope we've helped a lot of people. I mean, I think we have how many houses currently we have eight we have two women's houses and six men's in the Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area. For people that might not be familiar with sober living, and can you give us a snapshot of what it's all about and, and how it works? So our, our particular homes, there is no um, clinical uh, work in the homes. It's transitional living uh, homes. So... The people that enter our house have to be sober, right? Uh, we've got a minimum amount of time, 30 days when you come in. Um, they have to, we are big on 12-step. That's our mission and our focus that men and women will attend one meeting a day for the initial 30 days that they're in the house. If that means that, that we don't collect rent for them, now this isn't always typical and I'm aware of that, but if it means if we don't collect rent right then while they're doing this kind of 30 days and looking for employment, we're okay with that. Because I know that the spiritual always comes before the financial. It just does. The spiritual always comes before the financial. So we allow people to kind of get back up on their feet, find employment, find sponsorship, find a home group, uh, you know, get service positions. And then, you know, usually about 30 days, if they're doing what we ask of them, which is curfew, cleaning your room, cleaning, you know, doing your chores in the house, you know, that kind of stuff. Because I didn't know how to do that stuff when I got here. Like, I didn't know how to make my bed, really. I got an idea. Right. But I didn't really, I didn't do it. Yeah. That's for certain. And, and so just kind of getting people into like the groove of, of life, because that's what it looks like, doing your dishes after you eat. You know, how many times did I have a stack of dishes in the sink where I just was too lazy to clean it and I wash one at a time, you know, yeah. I needed to eat something. Right. You know, um, so getting that kind of stuff and, and um, you know, giving them a safe environment and, and allowing them to create friends while they're living there that'll help them kind of, uh, you know, push forward and keep accountable and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's a it's been a great deal. You're in business development for a local treatment center. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the Ridge, Ohio. Okay, uh, and we'll put a link up to that. Um, but I wanted to. I had a conversation earlier today, and I was actually thinking about this last night. Most inpatient rehabs, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, are t- 28 days. Yeah, I would say okay. most. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is the significance of that length of stay? Insurance. That Insurance I was, I was dictates wondering. that. Yeah. Okay. Otherwise, they'd be there a year with me. Right. You know. <laughs> I mean, it's just like yeah. insurance and ability to uh, resources to to fund treatment because you know good treatment. Um, isn't cheap. I mean, it's just not, you know, I mean, you've got a lot of licensed uh, clinicians that do great work, but they've put a ton of money into their degrees. And to get to that point, they have to get paid. It's, you know, and you've got doctors and nurses and, you know, techs and, you know, the whole gambit. So it's, um, yeah, that's what treatment uh, insurance is. Do you think, I never really thought about it that, that way of driving the cost up, how much of that is paying for a well-trained staff versus lack of support from the government? Well, so I've only worked for privatized treatment centers. So government assistance in treatment. Now there is, you know, if you've got Medicaid, uh, Medicaid will only pay for a certain amount. Cool thing about living in Kentucky is that there um, is – I don't. I can't remember the number. I want to say like thirteen or fourteen treatment centers that have been modeled after uh, the Healing Place in Louisville, Kentucky, and they are six-month treatment centers that are twelve-step focused. Okay, um, and it gives you an opportunity to kind of get your bearings and, and get back into life. Now, what I will say about those particular places, because they are government-funded, there is no real. You know, if you have a mental health diagnosis, you're pretty much you know, shit out of luck. And not to say, and they do the best work that they can. Right. But if you've got, you know, some, which most of us do, but if you've really got some presenting mental yeah. health issues, then it's just, it makes it super tough. And, and, and if you don't have the resources to get the good help, I mean, we have a lot of great mental health facilities in this area. I mean, Leonard Center of Hope comes to mind, but the unfortunate truth is, is that they're not free. You know, not even close to free. No, it's, it's super expensive. Right, it is. It's, it's. I mean, you know, when you're paying twenty five to fifty thousand dollars, sure, for twenty eight to forty five days, not many people can afford that. No, and, and that's when your you know families are taking out mortgages and mm-hmm. you're banking on the fact that this is going to work. It's yeah. going to be the saving grace, and then they'll facilitate insurance. And hope that but, but you that's get somebody, you know, right. and you get a couple grand back, maybe, right? And I guess when I was saying government putting more robust laws in place to make insurance more aggressive when it comes to yeah. addiction and mental health, so it's if a it whole costs, new gambit of uh, conversation. No, no, there. you're right. You're, 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 and, yeah. like, you know, yeah, no, like, no yeah. I know, but I mean, just in just in general, so it's a combination of lack of insurance and. Lack of private insurance, yeah, I would say would be yeah. the biggest, um, you know, kind of hold on people getting the help that they need because there are some great uh, mental health facilities. But and, and then, like you said, if you do take it out, it's not like this is a one-shot fix always. The unfortunate part about mental health and addiction is if you don't take the medicine you're given, you know, if you're diabetic, you take insulin every day. It's pretty. It takes you 30 seconds. You take it and, you know, you live. This stuff, it's like I don't see the I don't see why it's important for me to pray or with mental health, especially. You know, a lot of people they the symptoms go away, the voices or whatever it is, and they say, okay, well, I don't need to take this medicine anymore. Right. 
and they quit and they get you know and end up back where they were at. Right. So they you know that's the that's the toughest part about mental health is that like you can pay fifty thousand dollars, but there's no guarantee that this won't resurface at some point. Right. And people are scared of that. Right. Should be rightfully so. Yeah. Speaking of medicine, we've talked about this a lot of times, but we can touch on it somewhat briefly, is medically assisted treatment. Mm-hmm. And I think you have some op- opinions, just like everybody else does. But sure. But, but talk about medically assisted treatment and your so, thought about that. Yeah. Uh, so it has a place. And I'll, from the time that I got into the addiction treatment world to now, my view on it has changed significantly. Um, I would say that there are instances where it is being prescribed uh, too much. I mean, it's, I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways to recover. Um, I'm not here to judge anybody on how they're doing it. There are some ones that I really love and strongly support, like Vivitrol. I think Vivitrol is one of the best medicines that have come out for addiction, period. Um, you know, it, it takes the X factor out of opiates and alcohol, which are our two main you know, things we're fighting right now, meth being on the rise. But, you know, if you take Vivitrol, you're incapable of getting high uh, on heroin and, and it, you can't get drunk either. And it's a lot easier to dose because you do it once a month. Right. Absolutely. You show and up. So you ta- yeah. You take a lot of the guesswork out of saving strips and yeah, right. kind of mm-hmm. going back to dose every day and mm-hmm. things like that. So yeah. it seems like it's the newer age of the group. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that they've did, we have a, one of their national liaisons in the area in Columbus. She's wonderful. And, you know, she's very, you know, outgoing and likes to share a lot of their statistics. And I like to read all that stuff, but I'm a big proponent of that particular medication. Um, I guess Suboxone would be the next one. Uh, Suboxone um, ha- is a, it has great potential to help a lot of people. Um, it also has great potential to be abused. I do believe that there are certain instances where someone has such an acute opiate addiction that it may be medically necessary to keep them on it for a sustained period of time in order to keep them alive. Now, I used to not feel like that. I used to feel like everybody should come straight off of it. My experience has been different recently. But I will say that there are some, uh, there is no mild case of opiate addiction. There's no such thing as a mild case. But there are some instances where there are people on it and they will be prescribed it for life. And it feels more like a profit motive. And and what I'm seeing right now, like Suboxone has a street value. And Mm -hmm. what does that tell you? It can be abused. I mean, it can be abused. Right. Exactly. So if it's got a street value, this, the medication is getting diverted. Okay. And, And so I'm, just taking in a client uh that's where i was at before i was here the client is diverting his medication um and he's using it uh to fund his opiate addiction so i think and one of the problems i found is that some of the doctors and i will not name any names so don't press me on it but there are some doctors that if you fail your drug test for methamphetamine or other opiates they won't take it off won't take you off of Suboxone, 
And then there's some worse doctors that even if you do not have buprenorphine in your system, they'll continue to prescribe it. Now, that's neglectful, right? I mean, that's egregious. Like, it's a profiteering, it's a champion. Among addiction profits right now, there is some big money in prescribing that. Now, there's a new one out that I think can be much more effective because it does not have... Uh, they don't have the chance to for abuse. Um, probufine. I really haven't heard that. So one. this is injectable, uh, intramuscular injectable buprenorphine, which is the active ingredient in Suboxone, uh, and it's taken monthly. And so it's slow release, time released um, injection that you know gives you the dose every however many hours. Um, which is which is great. And sure. I, and that. Part of the Vivitrol model and part of the methadone model where you go and you dose in front of the people mm-hmm. every day. So this is – you are able to keep a control on it and you right. don't have the ability to go home with your script. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And do what you want to do with it. Absolutely. And I think that that's – I think that's probably – I hope the way things are trending – I know that there's a couple insurance companies that are paying for it now, which is a good thing. There's actually – um there is a uh, treatment center within Kenton County Detention Center in Covington, Kentucky. It was the first of its kind, um, and it's modeled off of the Hazelden, a Hazelden program that they've done, and they're um, giving uh, some of the inmates probufine before release. On back. their way out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I'm an abstinence-based guy. Um, I fear that, you know, over the course of time – you know, if someone is specifically an opiate abuser and that's it and you've never had any problems with anything else and you've never tried anything else, maybe that works. But my experience as a polysubstance abuser is that you give me enough time and you let me get bored with this thing you're giving me and I'll start smoking meth. Right. Like I've never done meth like personally. But I would now as it's growing in popularity. You know what I mean? Like, and that's in cocaine and uh, alcohol and all these other drugs. I mean, we're not solving the systemic problem. No. I would, I, when I stopped doing cocaine, I found it very quickly that I was an alcoholic. Right. It it doesn't, it (laughs) doesn't matter. Whatever, you know, those of us that have the gene, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, we're going to beat it to death. Yeah. Right. And it's not a, there's just no, Let's have a drink after work. Right. And what is that? No. I've never understood anything Let's get like shit that. Face right, that's exactly right. <laughs> we'll call in now. We'll just tell them we're not going to make <laughs> yeah, it in right. the morning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of those deals, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about stigma. It's all over the place. It's stifling. Mm-hmm. It affects your business. It mm-hmm. affects the world. It affects all of us that want to get help, mm-hmm. too scared to get help. Where do you see it in your line of work? And what does it mean? What does the whole concept mean to you? So I've worked nationally doing the job that I do. Uh, I've been from coast to coast doing this job. There are some areas in America that are much better than others. California, you can, you know, people just, it's just kind of like, okay, let's deal with it. You know, it's one of, they've probably done the best job. Um, And really coastal cities, you know, they just do a really good job with it. The Midwest, however, there is that stigma. Bible Belt, there is that stigma, um, where it's still perceived as a weakness or a moral failing mm-hmm. as opposed to a disease, right? Which is 
I don't want to argue whether this is a disease or not. You talk to the American Medical uh, Association about that, um, because since the 50s, they've said it is. So if they want to reassess and tell me it's not, then you then we'll talk. But as far as that goes, AMA yeah. has decided it is. So with that being said, you know, we've we've got a disease. Nobody, you know, beats on can- cancer. Now, cancer patients don't present the same sy- symptoms we do. And, but at the same time, nobody beats on schizophrenics for being schizophrenic. Like, oh, he's mentally ill. Okay. You know, but that presents in such a way and it manifests in such a way that people feel sorry for you. The manifestation of drug addiction is like robbing your mom. And and, and normal people look at that and they say, how could you ever do that? You are a scumbag. You're a scumbag. That's exactly right. And I get that. But having been on that end of it, it's like, oh, I really, you know, it was I didn't have a choice in this thing. And I know that sounds stupid. Maybe I did. Maybe I did have somewhat of a choice. But at the same time. In the beginning. Yeah, right. In the, I don't even know if I had a choice then. Right. You know, people run into it. You know, like, do you have a choice of drink? How many people do you know that have never had a sip of alcohol? Not many. Over the age of 13. Yeah, you know, right. 14. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Some of my kids, you know. Right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people, it's just, it's a tough dick. Uh, my grandfather died drinking rubbing alcohol. Really? In 1982, you know, he'd had a heart attack. He was getting the shakes. He knew the DTs were coming on. He, he, he grabbed the bottle of rubbing alcohol next to his bed, drank it, drank another one, and died. I mean, he was a good man. You know, I didn't know him, but of all the stories that I've heard, really good man. He was a plumber. Yeah. He'd get up and help a little old lady in the middle of the night and wouldn't charge her anything. Right. You know, like, good guy. He just had alcoholism. Right. You know, um, <clears throat> And, and, you know, like I was raised in a great home, uh, but I had addiction and I did some stuff that I, I regret a hundred percent. But if we can't, if we can't get past this idea that like this is a moral failing or a weakness, especially in middle America where this stuff is hitting hard because we have a higher, you know, there's higher poverty. There's not as much money in the area as maybe other parts of America. Like it's just going to continue to tear us down. Appalachia is a mess. Yeah. You know, it's just a complete mess. And so, like, you know, we can either continue to say, like, yep, what we've been doing for the past however long, you know, eternity since alcohol was invented, that, like, oh, you're just a, you know, piece of shit. Yeah. Or we can start, you know, focusing on how what's a solution together, right? And without doing that, because, like, right now, what I see is people are unwilling to go to psychiatrists in the Midwest and the South. They're unwilling to go seek mental health professionals mm-hmm. out, out of fear of other people knowing. Yeah, stigma. Stigma. Right. And that's what this whole thing is. You know, the referrals in a lot of cases don't, in this area, don't come from those places. They come from hospitals because n- nobody, you'll wait till you're almost dead before you find help. That's because you don't have another choice. Now, I'm sure it's like that everywhere in certain instances. Right. But there's a lot more, you know, availability uh, for those services because people seek them out because the stigma is right. high, especially in California. Right. You know, and that's where <clears throat> you could say that we're the lucky ones, or you know, but until people let go and understand that they have a problem and they're not going to a therapist once a month just because they have to dose – Mm-hmm. And they're seeing a counselor because they have to. Mm-hmm. It, something has to be done to invite 
this population into help instead of punishing them, you know, right. throw them in an incinerator who gives a crap, you know, who's going to come out and say, well, that's pretty inviting. Let me go look on psychology today and right. see, you know, so it's, it's difficult. So well said. It's got to start, you know, unfortunately we need help all across the board. It's got to be your postal workers, your factory workers, it's got to be, you know, celebrities. It's got to, you know, everybody needs to start paying more attention to mental health. I mean, and there's a lot of celebrities that, like, you know, Britney Spears has checked into another mental health facility. I know she's got addiction problems, but she's also got some mental health stuff going on. Which is a whole nother conversation, but those go hand, hand in hand the majority of the time. There's not, I don't know of anybody that has a drug problem or alcohol problem that does not have an underlying Right. I mean, it's Mental 95% yes, of the absolutely. time, 95% yeah. of the time there is some, you know, whether it be a depression and extreme anxiety or whether it be a personality disorder or some type of, uh, you know, psychosis from uh, schizophrenia or something like that. People are trying to cover up their mental health with, with drugs and alcohol. And you mentioned California. I think you're right. They're much more open and you've got a lot of celebrities that are celebrating their recovery, sure, which is great, but we we still got to have more people of influence, right? Talk about this and get out in front of it and say, "Hey, I've been through it. I've had a family member go through it." And you don't want to think that it's just the the wealthy and the powerful that, but but people that have reach, sure, they've got to get out there and talk about uh, it. To politicians, help. yes, you know, and we need to all whatever state you're in. Whatever country, and you need to let your politicians know that this is an important issue that we need to talk about. Like this, that we need more help from uh, government insurance, Medicaid. We need more help from our privatized insurance to assure that our mental health is uh, sustainable. Uh, you know, because it, it trickle. It's got a trickle down effect. You know, if I'm we've got big mental health problems and there's no help for me. That trickles down to my job, my inability to work trickles down to my children. Absolutely, that poverty, you know, and so and so on and so on and so forth and so forth. It, it, it's the human condition, it, man. I mean, sure. you're stripping it down to basic needs. Yeah, I mean, if we don't have mental clarity, yeah, we're trouble. we're no good to anybody. No, so it is a, it should be at the top of the list of things to address. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it, like you said. I think our economy gets better if we've got better mental health. You look at some of these other countries, and they get weeks and weeks off a year. Right. And we wonder why Americans, you know, if you, you're working 52 weeks a year, five or six days a week, sometimes seven, right? You have no time for you or your family, and we wonder why everybody's so damn anxious, and we wonder why everybody's so depressed. Right. My life is full of nothing but work. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, I've had, I get four hours of sleep, you know, like, and you just see that over and over and over and, and it's for like, what? you know. Really? Right. I mean, for what? I mean, we, and right, we're right. probably, no, American we're, dream. we're probably, we're <laughs> right. probably the most regretful right. society, you know, you're laying there when you're 80, you're like, what? What did I do? What, what just the happened? hell was that for? <laughs> you know, so right, you're right. right. I mean, we, we it's just we're all wound tight. Yeah, and absolutely. it's the almighty dollar and you know, moving up and sure, you know, progression and, up and, and, up and, and, and newer cars um, and yeah. 
self-esteem and peer pressure. Peer pressure is not for just for kids. No. You yeah. know, I mean, you it's... Yeah, keep up with the Jones, man. That's right. Yeah, keep up with the Jones. Jones got a new car. I need one. That's right. And, you know, and then when that pressure gets uh, all-consuming, then we look at, well, what will take this away for a brief period of time? Because I don't... I cannot relax for a week. Right. So what will take this away? I know. Heroin. <laughs> you know, like... Right. Methamphetamine will keep me going. I'll be able to work twice as hard as anybody in the neighborhood if I take, you know, a week's worth of meth. Right. Um, You know, that's unfortunately what American culture is is now. Yeah. In a lot of cases. Yeah. Anything, as we wrap up, anything you want to talk about that we didn't? Uh, You know, I I can't really, you know, I would say um, if anybody... Uh, that's listening to this is struggling and you're, you know, maybe ashamed of some of the actions that you're taking or, you know, you're in a lot of trouble right now and want to seek some help, but don't know who to, you know, feel free to, uh, you know, reach out to us. Um, is it okay to get my phone number? Sure. All right. 606-375-1982. And again, my name's Brad Toll and, I, and I'd be willing, I have resources across this nation that can help you um, seek substance abuse treatment, whatever state you're in, whatever mind frame you're in, whatever mental health issue that you're suffering from, there is help out there and that there is, there, there's a sun on the other side of that, those clouds. And I know what it feels like to have that dull life. That's just like a dull fork poking in the back all day. And that'll end, you know, just seek help no matter what, don't give up. And we'll put all your information, phone number, and uh, social media stuff, if that's okay. No, that's and, perfect. And yeah. the uh, Ridge, we'll put all that in the in the link in the description for the for the episode. So, Great, appreciate man, it. I really appreciate you being here. It's uh, uh, it's my you're, pleasure. You're a you're a good dude. You're a good man, just like you save all these other people. So you know, you too, Trevor. Yeah. I love you, dude. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks. Cool. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.